0: Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams. This is episode 40, the gerrymandering case. This is the one the Supreme Court ruled on last week. The name of it is Rucho, the common cause. This was a 5-4 decision in the Supreme Court. Court held that gerrymandering by state legislatures, in particular for congressional districting, is a political question that the federal judiciary has no authority to hear. Now, there are ways to address the issue, and we'll talk about that. The court goes over them. This case is a victory for the idea that the federal judiciary to the Supreme Court in particular is not a super legislative body that makes policy. It calls to mind one of my favorite Supreme Court quotes, and you'll know it if you've been listening, Justice John Marshall Harlan II in a dissent in Reynolds versus Sims, which we covered in episode 34, so go check it out. He said this, These decisions give support to a current mistaken view of the Constitution and the constitutional function of this court. This view, in short, is that every major social ill in this country can find its cure in some constitutional principle, and that this court should take the lead in promoting reform when other branches of government fail to act. The Constitution is not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare, nor should this court be thought of as a general haven of reform movements. That quote should be engraved in marble over every federal courthouse building. And in this particular case, the plaintiffs argued that unfair legislative districts for Congress was a blot upon the public welfare. Well, maybe, but that doesn't mean the Constitution has a remedy for it, nor that the Supreme Court has any authority to fix it. As always, the law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com and look for me in some upcoming collaborations with speakeasyideas.com. So go check them out online. I'll keep you prized as to what's happening with them. Remember, you can follow me on social media, Twitter at Blue Carp and on Facebook.com slash Blue Carp. I'd love to hear from you. Please check out the Facebook page for this podcast, the Law with D.K. Williams, contact me there. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, what I should do better, what I should do less of, whatever. I'd love to hear from you. And you can donate at paypal.me slash thelawdkwilliams. Wherever you're listening, like, comment, subscribe, you know, all of that, share, to help get us more publicity. So who are the named participants in this case? Robert Rucho was a named defendant. He was a Republican North Carolina state senator, chairman of the state redistricting committee responsible for these gerrymandered districts in North Carolina. Common Cause, among others, was a plaintiff at the trial level. What do we know about Common Cause? We will let them explain it themselves from their website. It's funny, when you first go there, it says breaking, a little splash screen on it. In a narrow and partisan ruling, the Supreme Court refuses to prohibit partisan gerrymandering. Now, we take the fight for fair maps to the states. But the fight to the states is where the fight belongs, and we'll get into some more of that. You can also fight in the Congress because the Constitution allows for the Congress to regulate state districts, and we'll talk about that. Common Cause has a second breaking announcement. It says, it's official, no citizenship question on the 2020 census, with an exclamation point. Um, So you can kind of see where they're coming from. We'll go over that recent decision in the upcoming weeks as well. And from their site, Common Cause says that they are, quote, holding power accountable. We are more than one million powerful, fearless ordinary Americans working together to build a democracy that works for us all. So there you have it. That's who Common Cause claims to be. Common Cause is clearly not happy with this result. And I seem to recall headlines about this being a big win for the Republican Party, and I'm not sure why. Both parties do this. They both do it brazenly and without shame. In this particular case, we're talking about North Carolina, but this case was consolidated with the case out of Maryland, where it was the Democrats who were doing the gerrymandering, and wait till you hear some of the state legislators' comments or the people in charge of these redistricting committees. They are brazen and shameless about what they're doing. Further description from the court. This is right from the opinion. This litigation began in August 2016 when the North Carolina Democratic Party, Common Cause, a nonprofit organization, and 14 individual North Carolina voters Sued the two lawmakers, Rucho is one of them, who had led the redistricting effort and other state defendants in federal district court. Shortly thereafter, the League of Women Voters of North Carolina and a dozen additional North Carolina voters filed a similar complaint. Those cases were consolidated. All right, so like we said, it was a five to four decision. The majority said Supreme Court can't do anything about these gerrymanders. Four person dissent. No concurrences, no partial agreements. This strict five to four, two opinions. This did go along party lines. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion. And I've gone over their roster stuff like I like to do about who appointed them and all that. Give you a little different information this time. So John Roberts wrote the opinion. He was appointed by W. He was born in Buffalo, New York. His dad was John Sr., listed as a steel company executive, and his mom was Rosemary. Also in the majority, Clarence Thomas, nominated by H.W. Bush. He was born in Pinpoint, Georgia. His dad was M.C. Thomas, a farmer. His mom, Leola Gorsuch. Nominated by Trump. Born in Denver. whoop Dad. David was a lawyer. His mom, Anne, with an E, which is completely unnecessary. And why my daughter's middle name is Anne, with no E. No offense to those of you with the superfluous E on the end of your name. So Gorsuch's mom, Anne, was head of the EPA for Reagan, which we mentioned in an earlier podcast because we like to bring up the oligarchy in this country and how obvious it is if you start looking for it. Kavanaugh, nominated by Trump, born in the District of Columbia. His dad was Edward, the president of a trade association. His mom was Martha and a lawyer, and a judge. So that's the five-person majority. The Dissent, written by Elena Kagan, nominated by Obama. She was born in New York City. Her dad, Robert, was an attorney. Her mom, Gloria, was a teacher. RBG joined the Dissent, nominated by Clinton, born in Brooklyn, another New Yorker. Her dad was Nathan, a merchant. Her mom was Celia. Justice Breyer, also in the Dissent. Nominated by Clinton, he was born in San Francisco. His dad was Irving, an attorney. His mom was Anne, also with a superfluous E. Finally, the fourth member of the descent, Sotomayor, appointed by Obama, also born in New York City. Her dad was Juan Sotomayor, a factory worker. Her mom was a nurse, and her parents moved to New York City from Puerto Rico, like my daughter's favorite composer, Broadway actor-singer, Lin-Manuel Miranda. So that's your 5-4 breakdown, straight from Robert's majority opinion. Here's how he sets up the facts. Voters and other plaintiffs in North Carolina and Maryland, because they consolidated these cases, challenged their state's congressional districting maps as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders. The North Carolina plaintiffs complained that the state's districting plan discriminated against Democrats. The Maryland plaintiffs complained that their state's plan discriminated against Republicans. The plaintiffs alleged that the gerrymandering violated the First Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, which we've talked about before, the Elections Clause, which we have not, and Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution. The district courts, the trial level, in both cases ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, and the defendants appealed directly to this court. Now, this uh, the North Carolina case comes from the Middle District of North Carolina, which is Greensboro, North Carolina, which is where I went to high school. That's where I used to hang out. The Middle District of North Carolina also has a courthouse in Winston-Salem, and they're just like 30 minutes apart. And I just bring that, up, bring that up because here in Colorado, there's one courthouse in Denver. So if you live in Grand Junction, which is like four and something hours away, you've got to drive that long to get here. Whereas North Carolina's got two courthouses 30 minutes apart. Not to mention, there's also, there's three districts in North Carolina. Greensboro's in the middle district, then in the eastern district, you've got courthouses in Raleigh and Wilmington, and also in Fayetteville and Manteo, but I don't, the district court judges aren't there at the moment, or they weren't anyway when I was there, last there 20 years ago. There's also the western district in North Carolina in Charlotte and Asheville. So you got federal courthouses all over the state of North Carolina, and in Colorado, you got one. Multiple judges, multiple courtrooms, but one courthouse. And I remember that in a prior gerrymandering case, North Carolina had a district that connected the Raleigh-Durham area with the Charlotte area by, at least part of the district was the lines were inside the interstate, not along the interstate, where you might get some people who lived on either side of the interstate. No, inside the interstate. So no one lives on the interstate, but that's how they connected these two different areas. I kid you not. That's how bad some of this stuff gets. But that was another case. That's not what we're talking about right now. Not in this particular case. They're bad enough in this case. Okay. in the legal analysis, Roberts jumps right in. He says, this is the question presented. He says, these cases require us to consider once again whether claims of excessive partisanship in districting are justiciable. That is, properly suited for resolution by the federal courts. This court has not previously struck down a districting plan as an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander and has struggled without success over the past several decades to discern judicially manageable standards for deciding such claims. The districting plans at issue are highly partisan by any measure. All right, so that's not an issue. Everybody admits that these are highly partisan. Nobody's pretending otherwise. So back to Robertson, the majority. The question is whether the courts below, the district courts, approximately exercised judicial power when they found them unconstitutional as well. So in essence, yes, They're partisan, but does that make them unconstitutional? The Supreme Court said no. We'll get to those reasons why. The court goes on. The Republican legislators leading the redistricting effort in North Carolina instructed their mapmaker to use political data to draw a map that would produce a congressional delegation of 10 Republicans and 3 Democrats. So North Carolina gets 13 representatives to the House of Representatives. And that's how they wanted to break it down, because they controlled the process. As one of the two Republicans chairing the redistricting committee stated, quote, I think electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats. So I drew this map to help foster what I think is better for the country. Not hiding. Not hiding what he's trying to do. Brazen and unashamed. Like I said, there you have it. Court goes on. He, this state senator, Republican in North Carolina, further explained that the map was drawn with the aim of electing 10 Republicans and 3 Democrats because he did not believe it would be possible to draw a map with 11 Republicans and 2 Democrats. So 10 and 3 was the best they're going to do. If they could have done 11 and 2, they would have. So the assertion that the districts in North Carolina and in Maryland are anything but pure partisan attempts to maintain control of the government is not in dispute. Everyone acknowledges that. No argument that the state legislatures had some other pretextual reason that might have been legitimate. Nope. They were super clear about what they're doing pure power plays. And I learned two important gerrymandering terms. They are cracked and packed. I'll let Justice Roberts and the majority explain those words. A cracked district is one in which a party supporters are divided among multiple districts, so that they fall short of a majority in each. A packed district is one in which a party supporters are highly concentrated, so they win that district by a large margin, wasting, in quotes, many votes that would improve their chances in others. So cracking, you spread them out over multiple districts and packing, you put them all in one district or as many as you can. So they're going to win that one, but they're not going to win the rest of them. That's the idea. Cracking and packing. And in the Maryland case, again, from the opinion, the Maryland governor later testified that his aim was to, quote, use the redistricting process to change the overall composition of Maryland's congressional delegation to seven Democrats and one Republican by flipping one district. The court explains it worked. The targeted district was flipped in 2012 and has remained Democrat. A couple of bullet points are important things. On the First Amendment point, according to the Supreme Court, the district court relied upon findings that Republicans in the 6th district were burdened in fundraising, attracting volunteers, campaigning, and generating interest in voting in an atmosphere of general confusion and apathy. Okay? After laying out the groundwork, like he just did about these facts and what was going on, Roberts gets to the constitutional stuff, and he writes, Article 3 of the Constitution limits federal courts to deciding cases and controversies. Those are the words in the Constitution. He says, We have understood that limitation to mean that federal courts can address only questions historically viewed as capable of resolution through the judicial process. Okay, I think everybody can stay with us through that. He goes on, In these cases, this North Carolina and Maryland gerrymandering cases, we are asked to decide an important question of constitutional law. But before we do so, we must find that the question is presented in a case or controversy, that is, in James Madison's words, of a judiciary nature. He goes on, Chief Justice Marshall famously wrote in Marbury v. Madison, which we covered in episode three, that it is the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. He goes on, Roberts, sometimes, however, the law is that the judicial department has no business entertaining the claim of unlawfulness, Because the question is entrusted to one of the political branches or involves no judicially enforceable rights. Again, we can look to the Constitution as a starting point to find these things. Sometimes the answer is right there, just like it is in this case. The majority goes on. In such a case, the claim is said to present a political question and to be non-justiciable outside the court's competence and therefore beyond the court's jurisdiction, which is what we have here. And, you know, back to Justin Harlan's quote. The Supreme Court is not a panacea to solve all the country's ills. Roberts is basically making that point. Sometimes it's up to the legislature to do something. Or the states, the state legislatures. They've got power in the system, and they can do whatever they want within some limits. They can do a whole lot in deciding not to gerrymander things. They can do that. It's up to them. It's not up to the Supreme Court. He goes on. The question here is whether there is an appropriate role for the federal judiciary in remedying the problem of partisan gerrymandering. The social ill, right? Whether such claims are claims of legal right, resolvable according to legal principles, or political questions that must find their resolution elsewhere. Seems pretty straightforward to me so far. The court gets into history, which is important in this matter and a lot of constitutional issues, discusses how Congress has the constitutional authority to pass legislation about congressional districts that are drawn up by the states. But they haven't, at least not to the satisfaction of the plaintiffs in this case. States can address that gerrymandering also. And they have, and the court discusses some of them that have gone on recently and that have gone on in the past. States can stop gerrymandering. States have constitutions, and if the state constitution limits gerrymandering and the state legislature violates that limit, the state Supreme Court can address it. Just because there's a problem doesn't mean the federal courts can solve it. Other places can solve it, and they should solve it. And if, you know what? If it doesn't get solved to your satisfaction, you've lost. That's the way it goes. So there are remedies available to these grotesquely drawn districts, and they are grotesquely drawn, some of them. But the remedies are political and not judicial, and that's okay. It's better than okay. It's good. That's the way our government was supposed to work, the way it is designed to work. And the Supreme Court making it work that way is what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to attempt to cure every social ill and be a panacea for every social justice movement in the country, without regard to legitimate constitutional authority. Roberts and the majority go into some history, they say. Partisan gerrymandering is nothing new, nor is frustration with it. The practice was known in the colonies prior to independence, and the framers were familiar with it at the time of the drafting and ratification of the Constitution. During the very first congressional elections, George Washington and his Federalist allies accused Patrick Henry Of trying to gerrymander virginia's districts against their candidates in particular james madison who ultimately prevailed over fellow future president james monroe all right that's some history again there's little new in politics this was like at the very beginning you've got these political gerrymanders going on washington disagreeing with patrick henry this is not new we seem to think all too often that modern politics or modern society is sinking to all-time new lows but take heart. We have been at these lows since the beginning, so don't worry about it that much. Nothing is new. Nothing is catastrophic. Not because we can't remember it already happened before. And most of you probably know where the word gerrymander comes from. But Roberts Supreme Court reminds us. He says. He writes in 1812, Governor of Massachusetts and future Vice President Elbridge Gerry. Now again, this is me. He said it with a hard G, not like Jerry from Seinfeld, but Gerry, like in Indiana. Even though we say gerrymandering, the guy named after pronounced his last name Gary. So Elbridge, not Eldridge, which I thought it was, Elbridge Gary notoriously approved congressional districts that the legislature had drawn to aid the Democratic Republican Party, which we don't have anymore. The moniker gerrymander was born when an outraged Federalist newspaper observed that one of the misshapen districts resembled a salamander. There you go. So gerrymandering has been a political fact since the beginning of this country, since before we were officially a country. The court goes on. By 1840, the gerrymander was a recognized force in party politics and was generally attempted in all legislation enacted for the formation of election districts. It was generally conceded that each party would attempt to gain power which was not proportionate to its numerical strength. So for example, if the state legislature gets 60% of one party and 40% of the other one, but if you can look at the numbers of the people that voted for each party, might be closer to 51 to 49%. That happens all the time. So that's trying to gain power, not proportionate to its numerical strength. The court goes on. The framers addressed the election of representatives, which is exactly what we're talking about here. Election of representatives to Congress. In the elections clause, of the Constitution. Let's remember, let's go back to what that thing says. Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1. That provision of the Constitution, which is important, assigns to state legislatures the power to prescribe the times, places, and manner of holding elections for the members of Congress while giving Congress the power to make or alter any such regulations. That's what it says. That's the Supreme Court just telling you what's in the Constitution. The answer is right there In the actual words of the Constitution, imagine that. This is part of the opinion where Roberts and the majority the several times when the United States Congress did exercise this elections clause authority. He goes on. The framers were aware of electoral districting problems and considered what to do about them. They settled on a characteristic approach, assigning the issue to the state legislatures, expressly checked and balanced by the federal Congress. This ain't rocket science, folks. The Constitution says states get to decide how they do that But federal Congress can change it. Those are two ways to solve the gerrymandering problem. The court goes on to quote Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton said, It will not be denied that a discretionary power over elections ought to exist somewhere. And Hamilton discusses state power, the congressional power, and one legislative body checking the other one, which is what they did. That was the result they came to. Back to the majority opinion. At no point, Roberts writes, was there a suggestion that the federal courts had a role to play, nor was there any indication that the framers had ever heard of courts doing such a thing? There you have it. That's undoubtedly true. Now, the Due Process Clause and the Privileges or Immunities Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which we've talked about before, which those are post-Civil War amendments, Our 14th Amendment was post-Civil War, that has been used to invalidate quote-unquote unfair legislation not giving somebody due process, not allowing for the exercise of the privileges or immunities of being a U.S. citizen, not providing equal protection. That's basically the argument of the plaintiffs here, that the Democrats in North Carolina and the Republicans in Maryland were making, the plaintiffs were making. and The court addresses that. The court needs, quote, judicially discoverable and manageable standards for resolving an justiciable issue. In other words, politics, state legislatures, and federal Congress get to decide those things. And note the irony here. Common Cause and the plaintiffs say they're all in favor of democracy. Democracy is what is so important to them. But here they are, arguing that the democratically elected branch, the legislative branch, be overruled by the least democratic branch of government, the judiciary. Remember that. They say they're in favor of democracy, but are they really in favor of power? They say they're in favor of democracy, yet they want to give the least democratic branch of government more power than they have. Seems contradictory, does it not? Now, racial discriminatory districts have been tossed out as unconstitutional. The court says absolutely they should be. The court notes that, quote, laws that explicitly discriminate on the basis of race are presumptively invalid. Absolutely. Race, however, is not an issue here. Merely pure partisan politics. Robert says the central problem Is not determining whether a jurisdiction has engaged in partisan gerrymandering. It is determining when political gerrymandering has gone too far. And he points out that that is not a workable standard. We know that there's partisan politics. When do we say when it's too much? There's no way of doing that, even if it was allowable. But it's not even allowable. The Constitution doesn't allow for it. And to say, well, I know what's fair and what's not. I know it when I see it. That's not good enough. That doesn't work. And we discussed that idea. I know it when I see it. In episode 33 of the law, when we talked about Jacob Bellis versus Ohio in the obscenity case, and that's when Potter Stewart said, "I know it when I see it." but he was talking about obscenity, and he didn't see it in that case, but he, he recognized that that wasn't a workable standard, and it's not a workable standard here. Is this too much gerrymandering? I don't know. Let me look at it. Let me let me figure it out by looking at it. That's ridiculous. That will get you a million different results for every million times it's looked at. Court notes, we have reason that districting inevitably has and is intended to have substantial political consequences. This lack of a judicially discernible and manageable standard is a recurring factor. The court can't just impose its view of what is right or what is reasonable or what is fair regarding congressional or the state legislative districts for that matter, but this case is specifically about congressional districts. That's not its role. The Constitution lays out that role, state legislatures and federal Congress. And like I said, don't forget, the state, constitu- state constitutions can address these districts too. If the state legislature violates the state constitution, the state courts can toss out those districts. There's plenty of ways to address this, but the federal courts is not one of them. The federal court system isn't supposed to be like your last chance grab bag. All right, we tried this one. It didn't work. Okay, let me try that one. That didn't work either. Okay, let me try another one. Damn it, it didn't work. Um, Well, I guess we have to file a federal lawsuit and try it that way. No, that's not how it works. Not how it's supposed to work. The court goes on. An expansive standard requiring the correction of all election districts, drawn for partisan reasons, would commit federal and state courts to unprecedented intervention in the American political process. You would have the judiciary taking over the legislative, and that just ain't the court's constitutional role. It's right there on the page. Court goes on. With uncertain limits, intervening courts, even when proceeding with best intentions, would risk assuming political, not legal, responsibility for a process that often produces ill will and distrust. In other words, somebody's always going to be complaining about it. The losers are going to complain. But they're supposed to complain to the legislature, not to the courts. Not for that, because the courts have got no way to address it that's superior to the way the legislature addresses it. And as to the equal protection argument court simply states out, and they go into this, but they conclude the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment does not require proportional representation as an imperative of political organization. So what they're saying is, you don't have to make it close. If there's 40% Democrats, that doesn't mean they get 40% of the seats in Congress from that state. And if it did, you know who would be the happiest political party in the country? The Libertarians would be the happiest political party. Because if we had, just say, 5% of the vote, whatever, if we had five percent, we would then get five percent of the delegates. If that's what, if, if proportional representation was required by the Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause, or whatever, if the Libertarians got five percent, we'd get five percent of the delegates. We would love that. It would make a huge difference in the way this country is is governed. I think it would be great as a policy matter, but it ain't a constitutional matter. It ain't a constitutional requirement. I wish groups like Common Cause were as concerned about the political parties with 5% of the population as they were with the party with 48% or whatever. So Common Cause and the plaintiffs make a great argument for the Libertarian Party getting 5% of the representation. Of course, that's not the argument they think they're making, is it? No, of course it's not. But that would be the rational outcome of their argument winning. The court goes on, Unable to claim that the Constitution requires proportional representation outright, because if it did, that'd be great for the Libertarians, Plaintiffs inevitably ask the courts to make their own political judgment about how much representation political parties deserve, based on the votes of their supporters, and to rearrange the challenge districts to achieve that end. But federal courts are not equipped to apportion political power as a matter of fairness, nor is there any basis for concluding that they were authorized by the Constitution to do so. As Justice Scalia said in another case, Fairness does not seem to us a judicially manageable standard. Of course it's not. Scalia is absolutely right. And the court is for adopting that idea here. The 14th Amendment doesn't require it. Article 1, Section 2, or any part of Article 1 or anywhere else, doesn't require it. And it specifically says it is not a court role. States get to do it subject to anything Congress tells them to do about it. The entire it's-not-fair argument is bogus. And fairness is a completely subjective standard with no way of making it consistent. The court points out, quote, There is a large measure of unfairness in any winner-take-all system. Indeed, it is. Of course, as a quick aside, as a policy matter, winner-take-all is very unfair in a voting system, which is another good reason to adopt approval voting or rank-choice voting. Again, that's better policy, but it's not a constitutional issue. And just because I want it to be a policy that's implemented— Does it mean it's constitutional or or mandated by the Constitution? Because it's not. Because I'm not just in search of power. I'm in search of justice and consistency. Harlan's words, again, they should be carved into every courtroom in marble. The Constitution is not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare. And a whole lot of these perceived blots are just the losers complaining. That's what happens in all elections. Somebody's going to lose. And i thought this was a great point by roberts uh comparing the racial gerrymandering which you cannot do with partisan gerrymandering he wrote unlike partisan gerrymandering claims a racial gerrymandering claim does not ask for a fair share of political power and influence with all the justiciability conundrums that entails it asks instead for the elimination of a racial classification a partisan gerrymandering claim cannot ask for the elimination of partisanship absolutely elections are partisan. You can't take partisanship out of an election. Like you can't take wetness out of water. Well, I guess you could take partisanship out of elections if you wanted to ban political parties, which has a certain appeal to it, but it's obviously not allowed pursuant to the First Amendment. But there's some things you could do. You could print up ballots that didn't list political parties. People would have to actually know what they were doing and not just rely upon a letter. That would work. But again, it's not a constitutional requirement, no matter how much I wish it it would be implemented as policy. And a good footnote from the majority opinion talking about the dissent. It says, the dissent's observation that the framers viewed political parties with deep suspicion as fomenters of factionalism and symptoms of disease in the body politic, which they did, is exactly right. Its inference from that fact is exactly wrong, the dissent's inference. The framers would have been amazed at a constitutional theory that guarantees a certain degree of representation to all political parties. That's the footnote. More accurately, be degree of representation to the losing political party. Common cause and plaintiffs aren't even arguing for all political parties, just the second place ones. And talking about the plaintiff's First Amendment arguments, the court says, there are no restrictions on speech, association, or any other First Amendment activities in the districting plans at issue. Plaintiffs are free to engage in those activities, no matter what the effect of a plan may be in their district. In other words, just because you're going to get your ass kicked in the election, you can still talk, you can still associate, you can still do anything else to First Amendment, lays out. And the court acknowledges, quote, these cases involve blatant examples of partisanship driving districting decisions. The only provision in the Constitution that specifically addresses districting assigns it to the political branches. Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1. Roberts and the majority say, excessive partisanship in districting leads to results that reasonably seem unjust. But the fact that such gerrymandering is incompatible with democratic principles does not mean that the solution lies with the federal judiciary. We conclude that partisan gerrymandering claims present political questions beyond the reach of the federal courts. Federal judges have no license to reallocate political power between the two major political parties. Quick aside, not to mention the minor ones. Back to the opinion. With no plausible grant of authority in the Constitution to the judiciary and no legal standards to limit and direct their decisions. What the appellees, what the plaintiffs, what Common Cause and the losers in Maryland and the losers in North Carolina and the dissent in this Supreme Court case seek is an unprecedented expansion of judicial power. Again, this is me again. They talk about wanting democracy, but what they really want is more expansion of the least democratic part of the government, the judiciary. The Supreme Court wrapping this up. Our conclusion, the majority, the Supreme Court, five to four decision does not condone excessive partisan gerrymandering nor does our conclusion condemn complaints about districting to echo and to avoid the states are actively addressing the issue on a number of fronts then the court lists several examples the fact that these demanding democracy routinely turn to the least democratic branch to achieve the means that they want to achieve that they failed to achieve the actual democracy is rather stark it's kind of ironic or whatever you want to say for example. The Atlantic had a headline about this, still has it up there. A day of sorrow for American democracy. Save the drama, please. Courts taking power from legislators, which is what the plaintiffs wanted, is what the Atlantic wanted, is not democratic. But these people, again, a lot of them have no concern for honesty. They only have concern for power. Back to what the states are doing. The Supreme Court mentions that Florida has a fair districts amendment in their state constitution. Roberts writes, the dissent wonders why we can't do the same. The answer is that there is no Fair Districts Amendment to the federal constitution. In the words of Kelso from that 70s show, burn. Just because some members of the court in black robes think something's a good idea, it's fair, which is a useless standard, or should be policy, doesn't give them the legitimate constitutional authority to implement that policy. Policy comes from the legislative branch and the executive branch. It doesn't come from the judicial branch. It's not supposed to. The court goes on. The framers gave Congress the power to do something about partisan gerrymandering in the elections clause. There's your answer. If you want to go to Congress, do that. If you want to, go to the states, do that. But just because Congress doesn't do what you want them to do, what the plaintiffs want, in this case, doesn't confer jurisdiction on the federal courts. And there you have it. Gerrymandering might be horrible. Indeed, it is brazen and shameless. But the solution is via Congress or the states themselves, including the state constitutions and the state courts. Because you lose in one of those places, or all of those places doesn't magically give you a federal case. The Supreme Court majority just points that out. They got it right. I am D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 40, Rucho versus Common Cause, the gerrymandering case. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at launchpadmedia.com and be looking for some collaborations from me from the law with speakeasyideas.com soon. Holler at me with your comments. Again, Twitter at BlueCarp. Facebook.com slash Blue Carp is my personal page and the Facebook page for the podcast, The Law with DK Williams. And if you'd like to keep the podcast going, you can donate at PayPal.me slash The Law DK Williams. Next week, I have an interview scheduled with a reporter from The Intercept, and we're going to discuss the Supreme Court and some recent decisions they've made on indefinite detention during the War on Terror. Of course, this goes back decades, but it's still a thing. They're still dealing with it. There are still people in Guantanamo for decades that have never been charged with anything. And we'll talk about that. I'm really looking forward to that discussion. And until next week, my friends, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.